Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Last Week in Brexit is brought to you by Pearson Solicitors and Financial Advisors, helping businesses and families for over 100 years. And Greater Manchester Chambers of Commerce. Connect. Communicate. Create. Hello and welcome to Last Week in Brexit, the podcast for Remainers and Brexiteers alike. Join me, Jonathan Beardmore, every week alongside Alex Davis and Christian Spence as we try and guide you through the choppy waters of Brexit. Hello and welcome to Last Week in Brexit, presented by Pearsons, but as always with the expertise provided by Greater Manchester Chamber of Commerce. I'm joined, of course, by Christian Spence. Hello, Christian. Hello. And Alex Davis. Hiya. Right, gents, we have got maybe not one big topic... But lots and lots of little topics which we need to slowly tick off our list. In fact, we're so organised, we've actually got a list. Yeah, and, it's, and there's, a, there's an awful lot on it, actually. You know, this, this has usually been kind of a one or two topic podcast as we've gone on over the past few months, but I think we might have 12 for you. Yeah, so what, what, what are we going to start with? Um, well, we have got some pretty tasty things to start with there, but before we do any of that, thank you for following us on Twitter. Thank you for leaving reviews on iTunes. And also, if you've got any questions or comments for either Christian or Alex, please get in contact as soon as you possibly can. Let's start, shall we, with Theresa May having dinner. Yeah, uh, I mean, <laughs> there, there isn't a whole lot to say about this. Um, so, talks are still at a stalemate, and this was an attempt, I guess, to uh, get things moving and have a nice little bit of dinner with uh, Jean-Claude Juncker and uh, Michel Barnier. So it was Theresa May and uh, David Davis who went along. Um, and I, I, tr- I tried to kind of read the reports of what was discussed and they came out and said, you know, it was a nice kind of productive conversation. I think one commentator described it as a masterclass in uncommunicative communication. Um, I don't Makes quite, you proud, doesn't it? I don't, I don't <laughs> quite know what it was for or, or what, what came out of it. Well, it has to be more success- successful than their last dinner. Well, that's true. Yeah, that's yep. true. We, yeah. uh, but, but there is time. If, yeah, there's time for the massive leaks from the uh, European Union side to come through on this. No, we've not made much progress, and I don't think I don't know what we expected to make progress on. Why is Theresa May getting more and more involved in these negotiations? Is it a sign of panic, or is it, it kind of like when you bring your boss to a meeting to show that you mean that, that you mean business? Well, I think there's two ways you can do that. I take, I take my boss to meetings, if I do take my boss to meetings like that, usually for one of two reasons. One is we're stepping up and we want the additional firepower, and one is we're panicking. And we think, we, we think we're not close and we need to try and push things over, you know? And, no, I don't, you were going to say something, Alex, actually. On no, I, I, was, I was just going to say, well, it, it, it strikes me as a, a bit of panic, um, yeah. especially as, you know... We've got the EU summit, which starts uh, the EU Council summit, which starts tomorrow. Um, this is this is Wednesday this week, so it's on Thursday and Friday this week. Um, and I think that was the point where talks were due to be officially moved on to trade, um, which we now know isn't going to happen until at least next year. Um, and there's been reports essentially that Theresa May has tried to wriggle herself into that in, in some format to uh, do a bit of a speech. Um, so yeah, it, it really. It, yeah, it comes across as, as a bit of panic to me. Like she's trying to inject herself into every possible uh, possible event that she possibly can. Yeah, and we've seen that with you know we talked a couple of podcasts ago about um, uh, Oliver. I forgot his name. Who was heading up the uh, yes our yes, civil yes, service yes. team being dragged away from Dexu into cabinet office oh, yes, along of with all of those do. things. So we see. I think what we're seeing is that Theresa May that we all knew and uh, we all knew so well from the Home Office. That great centralising control must must oversee everything. 
nothing must happen without my say so we're seeing that come through in the PM's job and you know, I think we talked probably months ago the big challenge of course is potentially the skills which allowed her not simply to be a very successful Home Secretary because I don't think she's rated as I don't think she was particularly rated by you know by the police by the court system or mm. as being successful but she came out of the Home Office alive which is more than the last 20 Home Secretaries have managed yes that which those skills which got her through that are not the skills which will make her a successful PM. The command and control. That's not how good leadership works. Yeah. Um, And I said, as Alex said, this all feels to me like it's not going right. I will intervene. But unfortunately, I'm not sure she has the political capital to actually make things better than they were before, and possibly the opposite. Yeah, because everyone used to refer to David Cameron as almost chairman of the board. Yeah. he was different to the Theresa May style. He absolutely, he used his cabinet. Um, you know, if you look back, I think, a lot of those speeches in the in the Cameron, Cameron period, the big set-piece political speeches on health or schools, it was the secretaries of state delivering those. You know, Gove ran education um, on his own. Um, uh, I've forgotten who was at health now. Um, his name's escaped me. Uh, Hunt? Hunt, uh, he was very much left on his own. They were the ministers were led were allowed to lead their own departments and get on with it. Um, Theresa May is dragging everything back to number ten again, and I don't think that's helpful. Hmm. Um, let's just move this on slightly. Theresa May wants obviously to open discussions regarding trade. I think that's been widely been widely accepted now. The EU have decided not to do that, or we think they're going to decide not to do that, but. Amongst all this muddle, there is actually a leaked paper from... Is it Germany? Yes. Um, yeah, so this was a, a piece of news, I think, from today or yesterday, um, that there has been a leak of a draft paper uh, coming from the foreign ministry in Berlin, mm-hmm. uh, where they... Essentially, it looks like what they are trying to do is they're trying to figure out this big comprehensive free trade deal, which we are mm-hmm. asking for on our behalf, which is, is nice of them. Um, and there's been some people talking on Twitter about why this has happened, because as we all know, leaks tend to not be done on accident. Yeah. Um, tends to They're be not a, really leaks, is yeah, what we're saying. Te- yeah, there tends to be a reason behind it. Um, and there's been a suggestion um, that this has been done because of um, these rumours that Germany and France have been the ones which have been holding things up so far. So I think we spoke about this last week, the fact that... Uh, apparently the EU is broadly kind of satisfied on issues like the divorce bill and is happy to kind of move things along, but it's been France and Germany playing hardball and asking for more detail. Um, and so there's been a suggestion that this has uh, been leaked on purpose uh, as a kind of sign of goodwill from Germany, that they're actually, behind the scenes, they're trying to figure out the details for us. So this is kind of what this is where, where I'm coming from now. And this, this is what I've thought for a while. Just because the two sides aren't officially talking and, sort, and sorting stuff out, it doesn't necessarily mean that things aren't being done to sort these things out. So this is why I get rather frustrated when people talk about, well, why aren't these talks happening in parallel? In my mind, they basically are. If both sides are working on free trade agreements behind the scenes, it looks yeah. like that establishment work is already taking place. I think it is, and it's getting ready. I mean, we should carry out, of course, that, that paper. They, they still talk about when they get underway. Yeah. So there's still a progress has to happen. Mm. Uh, but yeah, absolutely. And I think this is kind of where, I, Alex, you talked about this weeks and weeks ago, is I think that the UK government establishment media, you know, the Brexiteers especially, kind of underestimate the role Barnier has in all this. in actually trying to help us through. It's daily yes. pace. Barnier is too much of an enemy of the other side. He kind of wants to. It's exactly what we which, are doing. Which it's, is exactly what Philip Hammond did. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's literally the enemy. The, who called him the enemy? Um, you know, there's. You know, he's trying to make the right noises. I think there is a willingness to throw us a bone. Do you think? You know, we do want to talk about this stuff. We understand. You know, the big rewriting of the uh, of the EU papers from the summit. Uh, this week, the council meeting, which is just trying to say, look, you know, we're happy that there are mentions of starting to talk about trade in there to just try and soften it. But the two sides agreed to go through this process, which is tick the three things off first. Um, but it's just trying to, there's a desire to try and help the UK government, yeah. but we're not. But it's not taking the, no. it's not taking the advice. Do you think Barnier has been unfairly? Described by the by the UK press because I think there might be that might be an element of that. Yeah, I, I think so, and I think it's the point is we 
there, and we've definitely talked about this in a, pre- in a previous podcast, there's two different sets of freedom going on on the two sides of the negotiations. Our government is leading its own negotiations. Yes. The UK government is in charge of the UK government's position. Michel Barnier, as head of Task Force 50, is in charge of implementing the desires of the European Council and the European Parliament. Mm. They've given him a set of guidelines. He has no authority to stray from those guidelines. Um, Now, people have said, oh, it's not right, we want to do something differently. Well, maybe maybe we, we acceded to an order of stuff which we would now like to change. What I'm not aware of, though, is that the UK has formally requested to Barnier to say, actually, we think you should go back and try and get a renegotiation of the objective. Yeah. We're not actually asked. Yeah. We cannot expect him to work outside that because he simply doesn't have the power to do so. Well, I, um, and you've talked about this in some of the blogs, Alex, haven't you? The, you but that's not an easy ask because you're going to have to go back to 27 member states and get them all to agree on a new set. See, where I think Barnier is really important, he's important for lots of reasons, but really important, and it's probably overlooked, is... His ability to try and fit round pegs into square holes. And what I mean by that is interpreting the guidelines in a favourable way for both parties just to get, to get it through. And I don't think pe- people are thinking about that. They're thinking these are stringent guidelines and they will not deviate from, de- deviate from it. And I think a lot of it is going to be down to interpretation. I mean, the EU is a master at this. <laughs> yeah, an absolute master at taking a set of rules and finding that there is a breadth yes. to their application, uh, which is not something the UK does. You know, we talked we talked endlessly before before the Brexit stuff about the, the challenge of the UK gold plating EU regulation when it comes into UK law. So we have problems with with EU law that other EU member states don't have a problem with um, <laughs> because we tend to be it's the British way you know we're, a, we're actually we're a very rules based we mm-hmm. don't break the law we don't have a great economy particularly um, so I think no, you're right I think Barnier's desperately trying to help he's made if you read between the lines he's made some yeah. pretty broad statements in the last couple of weeks where he's saying look we want to move on but you know, my hands are tied. We have to. We've got to agree these three things. We're ready to move on. Yeah. But we've got to make progress. What is your understanding, both of you, then, of the so-called uh, stalling from France and Germany? Is this is this a legitimate uh, accusation to put to them? I. Hmm. Dive in, Alex. If you can come to a more, a faster, more tactful answer than I'm about to. Um, no, go go for it. You explained it quite well earlier on. <laughs> um, no, I don't. No, I don't think they are stalling. I think there's. I can understand how it's painted like that, and I can understand how this is going to sound unbelievably patronising. I can understand how people who haven't sort of spent the detail crawling all the statements can see that. But it all it all comes back to the change that we agreed a process. Mm. Um, the the comments we've had from council last week uh, and the revised paper, the paper that went into council, it got tweaked and has come back out is trying to help out by saying, yes, let's actually start thinking about what the transition stuff might look like. It's not a commitment to do a transition. It's not scoping out, but let's get the EU side thinking about what that looks like now. But before we talk about it, we've got to do the three things. And that analogy I used earlier, wasn't it? It was about the, the money issue. Um, Theresa made a Florence speech kind of committed to more money than we've committed to fully, another 20 billion, essentially, our ongoing membership fees for the transition period. Um, and people said, oh, Germany is pushing back and France are pushing back saying we want more. And I think, well, they do want more, but it's not a, this is not a, we're going to screw money out before mm. we'll talk to you. The analogy is before, and people have said, you know, the John Redwoods and, you know, have been wrong on everything about this so far. Insist on using analogies like golf clubs. If we leave the golf club, we no longer have to pay our membership fee. We just, we just, yeah, exactly. We just walk away. Um, so of course if we say actually we want a transitional deal which basically gives us an additional two years membership then obviously two years membership fees are due mm. that's not that's not an offer from us that will be a bill that will be presented that's mm. if you want the membership for two more years but I think what the Europe is looking for is all the other stuff it's the it's the capital funds it's the we've kicked off a road building project in Latvia last year which is going to run for six years will you continue to pay that beyond your two years membership mm. so yeah the analogy is before is 
fine, you want to walk, you want to extend your membership of the golf club for two years and then walk away. That's cool, but you also committed that you would pay your share of the new clubhouse fees, and that mortgage yeah. goes on for 20 years. So what we need is your share of that mortgage payment. See, I do wonder if you're going to start uh, putting through as many expensive projects as they possibly can in the next two years if we have the obligation to, to pay for it. No, it can't be done because we're already yeah. in the budget, essentially. The budget cycle's already committed. Um, Will we not be in the new budget cycle during our transition, though? Uh, that's what I'm worried the, about. The budget cycle ends in 2020. 2020, yeah. So, yeah, we'll just so be on poten- Potentially we'll be, we'll be there. Which uh, is exactly what I, if I was you, that's exactly what I'd negotiate. Yeah, and we talked about those, some of those challenges. You know, the, the transition dealers, apparently Theresa May wants it now, which is in everything, but without any say. You know, worse than the Norway option, worse than every other option. Um, I think for me gives, I think we talked about this last week, gives the EU a colossal opportunity. Mm. Actually, we've got free movement with the Brits. Everything can move around freely. They're still giving us cash. But if we now set a rule which says euro clearing has to happen inside the eurozone, um, we can implement that and the UK doesn't have a vote. Yeah. Which currently it does. Um, that's, yeah. it's... For us, it's the worst of all worlds, and for the EU, the best of all worlds. Yeah, I, mean, be, but I don't know why be, we've proposed there it. There must be a downside somewhere. I mean, we're talking too quickly for me to think about these th- think about these downsides, but it can't be quite as straightforward as EU wins, we lose on, on, on absolutely everything. The, the, problem, the problem for the EU with the transition period is that they would have to stipulate that it's time-limited, I would have thought, yeah. because there's a possibility that we would get stuck there, and if we get stuck there, then it's going to set a precedent for all sorts of other things, you know, all, all the relationships that they have with places like Switzerland and blah, 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 are all of a sudden going to come into question if we end up just sitting in that position. Yeah. Um, let's just, whilst we're on, on Switzerland, Yeah. Uh, let's just link that to the Germany deal. Now, it's Germany, the proposed German deal. Do we have any details on what they were proposing? And also, what is this that has been in the press of late about a Swiss-style deal? Um, in, t- in terms of the, the German uh, leak, it's, it's only four pages, um, it's, so it's, it's quite rough. But it, so how compre- comprehensive is this, is this idea then, or is it...? Well, at, at this stage, not, not very. Um, but what they are suggesting is, is basically in line with what Theresa May has been saying previously, in that they want a comprehensive free trade deal which covers all sorts of stuff, um, gives us like a, really, really high ac- a really, really high access to the single market, and all that kind of thing, rather than a kind of piecemeal approach. Mm. Um, and that is generally been what we have been asking for. Um, until last week, when the government came out and officially said that what we're seeking is a Swiss-style arrangement, or a Switzerland-plus-style arrangement, which for me is a bit of a weird juxtaposition, because the Swiss arrangement is a very, very piecemeal type of arrangement, yeah, and it's one which the EU is increasingly unhappy with, and Switzerland is also pretty much unhappy with for a whole bunch of reasons and it's because there are I think around 100 bilateral deals on all different parts of the economy different sectors different products Um, and there there are a few major problems with the way that it works Uh, the first one is that there is no formal mechanism in place for those those, uh, bilateral deals to be updated as the rules of the single market change so I think there's something like 15 ratification bodies, which every time that the rules change, all these bilaterals have to go and they have to renegotiate them. It's just very, very time... I heard, actually, that the Swiss deal is a nightmare for yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, it is. They hate it. It's very time-intensive. It's very effort-intensive uh, because it's not automatic, uh, pretty much like Norway's position is by being a member of the EEA. Um, mm. And there is also something else which I've read about this week, uh, which is a major problem in the Switzerland deal, which is called the, the guillotine clause which is included in uh, all their bilateral deals, which essentially stipulates that if Switzerland breaks any of the rules included in those bilaterals, then the whole agreement breaks down. All, yeah, all the bilaterals yeah, they're, they're, they're yeah. all They're all linked. So basically Switzerland are forced into accepting whatever the EU wants of it. So and, and, and so, so, so this is for the ministers that have spoken about this whole Swiss plus arrangement have spoken about this guillotine clause and say, well, obviously, we want this kind of Swiss arrangement. We can't be party to something like the guillotine clause. Um, I think that what they're asking for is something like if we break a particular part of a bilateral deal, then only that deal is then called into question rather than everything. The problem with that approach is, once again, if the EU gives us that, then Switzerland are going to turn around and say, well, what about us? Why can't we have that deal too? Um, I mean, the answer could be you need to grow your economy by three or four, three, three or four times more, and then maybe you could. Maybe, maybe, yeah. But I, 
I, it doesn't quite make sense to me the approach that we've been asking for a comprehensive free trade, trade deal for so long. Now we're asking for something that's kind of a piecemeal approach, like the Switzerland deal. Why would we want a piecemeal agreement rather than an all-encompassing one? Um, I think this kind of goes back to uh, the idea that pe- uh, ministers were talking about months and months ago, this idea of kind of sector, sector-specific deals. Mm. Um, so we can have you know, a sector for the car industry, and a, you can come out of the common agricultural policy, the common fisheries policy. We can have different arrangements in different parts of the economy to suit us. Yes. Um, but I'm positive that when we asked for that, that was something that the EU came back and said, you know what, you, you can't do that. Yeah, exactly, because um, it's just too hard. Yeah. Because uh, they're all going to be losers, aren't they? For instance, fishermen might lose out in order so we can secure banking or some such thing. Yeah, that's it. And you probably want to do all this in one go rather than slowly ease one sector out and through. Um, and of course, the challenge is actually is you, you're also setting up multiple disruption points. You're one of the big things that the British Chambers of Commerce and all the other business groups are being are being very firm on government with. They're saying, look, there's going to be an almighty shift at some point. Can we please agree that there is going to be one almighty shift? Yes. Yeah. So what you're saying uh, is you not want... that we change bits of it every bloody year for the next twenty years. Yeah. Because, so we're not uh, renegotiating a hundred different sectors slow, slowly over the course of five years. Yeah. 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 And, and back to, back to the Swiss deal. I mean, there's a, a, a an amazing chart, one of my favourite charts ever. Yes. Which I, <laughs> I tweeted out um, on one day this week, which outlines some of the bilaterals that Switzerland has with the EU. I didn't really understand that chart. Just just. Tell me, it's, tell me a bit more in a bit more detail. It's basically the the, the main ones uh, are plotted, plotted on a timeline, um, and the, the various stages of, of the negotiations and implementation of, of those deals are outlined on the chart. And some of them go back as far as the year two thousand and one, um, you know, and they're they're still being implemented today. So it just goes to show that some of those bilaterals have taken sixteen years and aren't even fully implemented yet. Well, um, it's it's just one of the, one of the main problems with the Switzerland arrangement is that it's just it's just so hard, time and effort intensive on both sides. Neither side likes it. Um, why, why we would go for that over the Norway option, I have absolutely no idea. It's interesting. Now, do you remember not so long ago there was a referendum in? Switzerland regarding immigration. Yes, I do. Now, how did that end up, and how does that interplay with the guillotine clause? Okay, so essentially, um, the Swiss were increasingly the Swiss, the people, rather than the Swiss government, uh, were increasingly worried about uh, freedom of people, which mm-hmm. is one of the one of the bilaterals. Um, so they went for a referendum, the Swiss light referendum, of course. They do most of their most of their lawmaking through referenda, yeah. uh, and there was a slim majority in favour of uh, coming out of freedom of movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the EU had a word and said, well, okay, you know, that is, that is, you have a democratic mandate for that, but bear in mind, if you try and restrict immigration, all the bilaterals stop. You fall out of scope um, because they're all broken, essentially. Yeah. Now, the Swiss government has now essentially chosen to ignore the referendum decision. Is that so, right? Yeah. Uh, it's, it's a, a big price to pay, isn't it, yeah, really? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Uh, now, that's an interesting conversation, and one which I'm sure if we mentioned a similar aspect going on in the UK, you might get some very interesting results from the uh, population as a whole. But essentially, that's it. They said, we have a choice to maintain freedom of movement or cannibalise the economy. Mm. Yeah, and I guess they're <laughs> even more at the mercy of the EU than even Britain is, because at least you've got sea lanes and, you know, Ruin Island. Yeah, I couldn't imagine the pain it would cause. Mm. Cause Switzerland. Yeah, and, it, and it's not. I mean, Switzerland isn't as integrated as the rest. You know, it isn't a full single market member at all. Financial service. Bizarrely, everyone seems surprised by this when they find out financial services is not part uh, of the Swiss uh, EU uh, bilaterals. Mm. Uh, they're exempt. But it seems to do okay with financial services. It's one of the strongest. I mean, many people would say that's because of a hundred or two hundred year history in operating secretive and. Uh, Internationally dubious arrangements <laughs> for hiding uh, hiding money. But, uh, hmm. So, are we are we saying broadly then that you're less in favour of the Swiss option than the potential other the potential other options? Um, if, uh, I mean, well, I just don't think it's workable. I think it's one of those things that it's yeah. you almost don't need a position on good or bad because actually the EU won't have it. We know that they've been utter. And this is the other thing in the negotiations: we keep doing this. We constantly keep putting the things on the table which the EU has many times already outrightly rejected. Yeah. 
and then and then act surprised when they and, push us back. And, and, the, and the problem is for me is that we're constantly making this more difficult for ourselves. Yeah. Um, I mean, why would we go for something where we need to negotiate a whole bunch of bilaterals rather than one big one, or just stay in the EEA or something like that? It's just much, much more to get done in the time period that we've got. Um, yeah. When the clock is ticking, I just I, I don't really understand it. Okay. So we know on the one hand a load of bilaterals isn't a good idea. And on the other hand, we know that uh, an all-encompassing deal is not in the UK's uh, best in, um, best interests for the reasons that we discussed. Do you think that there might be a sort of third way here where you, they might just group sectors into you know, like manufacturing and then agriculture and then something else rather than the whole thing in one go? That might be more acceptable to both parties. Yeah, I, I think that's what... But that's what will happen. If, if we get if we get a big free, free trade deal, that's the way that which it will be worked out. Um, it'll be a, a bunching up of loads of different things into one. I, I, I definitely don't think the EU would accept a situation where there's a bunch of different deals and they might all have to be negotiated at different times and all that kind of thing. Because I'm pretty sure Michael Gover said uh, fish, like fishery rights will be the UK's and the UK's alone when, when we come up they, the They've, sa- they've yeah. said this, yeah. yeah, and they've said actually both both um, fisheries and agriculture policy mm. yeah, would be outside at the point of leaving, so 2019, not part of the, yeah. so we leave before, they don't form part of the transition because you don't need them to. Um, I mean, that's a, that's a challenging timeline I mean, if you if you look at the sheer amount of treaties involved in each of those areas, agriculture is the single most complex. Yeah. Um, because of food regulation. And it's actually and one of the areas that, that we're not that bothered about. It's well, it clearly depends who you talk to. If you talk to a farmer, farmer then you're going to get a very different. But, I mean, uh, compared to financial services and uh, and I think the, this is a really interesting challenge. I think there's a really interesting Man- point within sorry, manufacturing as well. Yeah. It's an interesting point within industrial policy and all bits of support is, is, and actually I think there's been some good blogs by a few people thinking about this saying recently, talking about actually we're not thinking strategically at all about what it is the UK wants. We are not going to strike any deal with the EU which gives, which allows our strongest bits of the economy to compete with their weaker bits and not get hit the other way around. That's not how trade deals work. Yeah. You know, that's the, the, so then actually, what do we want to focus on? Where do we think our value add is? Um, and these are some questions that can the UK has to start answering. I mean, these are the tick boxes we asked for a year ago. You know, first of all, why are you leaving? What do you hope to be able to do by, by leaving that you can't do now? How might you grow that? And you're right, we get worried about agriculture when it's hugely important. There are environmental spin-offs. There are jobs into rural area spin-offs. At a macroeconomic stage in global competitiveness, it is, a, it is sorry people, statistically, it is an irrelevance to the UK economy. Yeah. At any meaningful level. You, if you shave 10% off manufacturing, a tiny bit, just 10% of the manufacturing, that will, that will be far larger than anything you would do with agriculture. Yeah. Um, uh, and certainly once you take in. And then again, manufacturing will be relatively straightforward because that's what core free trade agreements are. It's about manufactured goods. It's the other stuff. You know, this is actually for me where we've not heard any conversation from politicians yet is the services side of it mm-hmm. 80% of the economy is services we are the second largest services exporter in the world we are massively dominant in terms of skills and ability in huge chunks of that way more than any of our European competitors no one comes close on financial services on insurance on digital on those kind of innovations no one else in the EU comes close that's where we should be really worried because that's where we've got a big opportunity to do you know, to, to, to sell our services into Europe and none of this really, is being talked um, about a really elementary question yeah. but when they carve up these deals and you know, say they exclude ser- services is there not an element of the EU which you think hang on maybe we do need those services because we don't actually have um, what it takes to, rep- to, to to replicate them once they're, once they're gone. Well, I think part of that, I think, yes, there's an issue, but I think the part of them is actually is our leaving will allow them to capture an aspect of our firms. Mm. As in just buy, buy a section, yeah. you know... C- c- right well, or, you just, or you move your head office or you set up a subsidiary so you can still sell into the EU marketplace. Mm. Uh, because no UK services firm that is globally leading is going to just stay in London and not have a subsidiary in the EU and watch a market Shrug- of 430 million people vanish. Shrug their shoulders and say, oh well. No, they will move. They will set up a subsidiary to be able to do that. Um, 
Now, from the EU's point of view, that means you've got the location there, which means you've captured the tax, you've now captured the income tax, you've now captured the v the GVA into local economies. That's that's a win-win. Yeah. You know, and certainly we've seen that with some comments from you know, Germany, France, particularly Ireland, because Dublin will be looking for a lot of this kind of stuff as well. Um, actually, they're you know a no deal or a a big move away from the status quo has the potential to have some long run positives yeah. for their countries as they then actually will say we'll capture because why would you your firms aren't going to shut out the 120 million market and not do anything no it'd be it'd be fairly bizarre I guess if they did um, let's just move things to a bit more of a domestic set, um, uh, setting one of the things that you put on there which I find very in, um, interesting Alex is a letter to Labour um, go on uh, yeah, so this is a letter which was sent to Labour today by the Tories, basically asking them to clarify their position on no deal and uh, accusing them of undermining the negotiation strategy and probably the will of the people as well alongside it. Um, <laughs> I, 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 don't I don't understand it. I mean, I'm, I've laid out my opinions on this whole no, no deal thing numerous times on the uh, on the podcast. Um, it was interesting that last week, uh, after Philip Hammond came out and said that they weren't going to put, he wasn't prepared to put budget aside for planning for no deal, um, the CBI uh, came out, the, the business members of membership organisation came out fully in support of Philip Hammond. Um, and there was people like Julia Hartley Brewer on Twitter saying oh, that yes. he should be tried for treason. And yes. It's, I find it just insane. I, I, I understand the idea that people think we should be preparing for no deal or at least we should be saying that we're preparing for no deal mm. um, you know as a negotiating strategy I, I get that but what I don't understand is what preparation do they think that we could actually be doing for it I mean do that's they, a good question do, actually do, what, do what they, do we do well I mean, I mean it would take we would have to massively expand ports I mean I've got an article in front of me which we'll talk about just after this about Dover and what the implications for Dover would be alone but that's not talking about any of the, the other so, major ports around the country there, there would have to be new institutions set up to replace the EU institutions they would have to find staff you know we would have to spend billions and billions and billions doing loads of work which would take years in planning for a scenario which we are actively trying to avoid I mean, mm. and if you, lay out, if you lay it out like that, I mean, are people really expecting us to do this, or do they just want to send that message that we are? I'm, I'm not quite sure. So, uh, I guess what you're saying is, in order to bluff our way through the negotiations, we'd have to redevelop Dover and a few other places. Yeah, I mean, we could say, you know, we're making we're making serious preparations for no deal, and someone in Calais with a pair of binoculars would be going, no, they're not. You know, no, no, they're not, because nothing's happening over there. I think that's the thing, actually, is, I mean, there's a, wide, there's a wider thing on that, is government, its constituent politicians, the politicians, the media, are all having conversations internally in the UK as if somehow people in the EU can't hear them. Yes. So, you know, May goes over and has a, you know, May and Davis go over and presumably have a slightly begging dinner uh, earlier this week, trying to get things moving. Apparently she's now, she's also turning up at the European Council on Thursday and is going to speak. God only knows how that will go. Desperate trying to move things along. But then Davis comes back to Parliament yesterday and it's like, oh, you know, no deal, no problem, that's what we're preparing for. And it's like, well, but... So what you're saying in public and what you're saying to the people whose opinion you need is completely different. Do you think that... So, so this is why I think they lose confidence. Because what is your position? This, this because is, this is, yeah. you come and talk to us in private and say A, and then you go back home and this, broadcast in Parliament and the media B. We, ha we, ha we had uh, on Tuesday this week an international trade forum event mm. where um, a lawyer who works for Squire Patton Boggs uh, and works in Brussels flew over especially for the day to come and talk to us to give us the view from Brussels. And essentially the view in Brussels is that the EU27 has a much, much more coherent view of Brexit than we do. And it, and it, it, make, it makes, total, makes total sense to me. That, that's slightly scary, isn't it? Yeah, in many we, ways. We, we are negotiating... Our government is negotiating with themselves more than the EU27 is negotiating this. That's quite an interesting point of view. Yeah. Having said that, I mean, there obviously are things going on. I mean, we, we did highlight the advert a few a few months back now, didn't we? Uh, the trade resolution bo uh, 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 body. Yeah. And it does seem a bit odd to me that Hammond wouldn't just say that he's preparing. I mean, he doesn't need to build a port, electoral port in Dover. He could just say, look, we are drawing up some paperwork of what the 
Bowl might look like. Well, what will the institution might look like. Yeah. Well, this this is actually going on to another point which I haven't put on the list, which is that. Um, <laughs> We, we spoke before about Joe Morm, this, yeah, this yeah. QC, this lawyer who works for... Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. He's always uh, on Twitter. Uh, he's got a, a, a group which he set up called the Good Law something. I, I, can't, I can't quite remember yeah. what it is. So he was the guy which crowdfunded um, the whole, is Article 50 revocable? Um, you know, Which it is, apparently. Uh, which I think, I think the opinion now is The opinion is. generally is, um, yeah. We don't have so he, he a cr- formal yeah. legal decision, as it were. He, crowd, yeah. he crowded, crowdfunded that, and now, now they're going for another job, which is to essentially put in some kind of freedom of information request or threaten the government with legal action uh, to force them to release all the planning and uh, kind of assessments that they may have done on what Brexit might look like or what no deal might look like. Because the government is basically telling us that they have all these reports and that they've done the work, but they're just not releasing them to the public. Um, And so it seems like behind the scenes, maybe they've got an idea of how much much budget they might actually have to set aside to do this. I mean, it's going to be vague, but they're they're not going to tell us what it is. Someone must be working. I can't imagine that someone's not working on it somewhere. Yeah, and so there's a a crowdfunding page set up. uh, They're looking for something like 60k to to fund the legal case. I think I checked today, it's up to like 50-odd or something Just to be clear, Joe, what's his name? Joe Joe Moore. Is he crowdfunding his own fees? He's crowdfunding. Um, well, it's, it's a group. Yeah, 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 yeah. A group to crowdfund fees to then go to high court because you need to go to high court for it. So he, he's, I doubt he'll act as a uh, uh, act for it. Yeah, and I thought that we were pro- uh, uh, proactive on Brexit. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, no, that's uh, it's different altogether. Um, does either either one of you want to talk about the date the the, the David Davis statement? As we've already sort of spoke about uh, the two different um, messages that he's given. Yeah, I, I watched it literally just before we started recording, because um, I'd only read the headlines about it, I hadn't actually watched it. And it was quite bizarre to watch, actually. Um, he, he went to give uh, give a statement on progress of not just the fifth round, but uh, all, all the rounds so far of negotiations and set out where we're at currently. Mm. Um, and he looked kind of quite sad like (laughs) normally David Davis comes across as being quite overconfident and everything's going to be great and blah 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 don't talk Britain down but you know he was very very reserved he didn't kind of look up at his opposition very often um, you know saying you know we've made we've made some progress but he was really laying out all the areas where progress hasn't been made um, particularly on, on, on citizens' rights, he, he gave perhaps more detail than, than we've had before from the government. So he laid out exactly every area where there there is a, there still isn't agreement. So um, I've got them here in front of me. There's ongoing recognition of adult qualifications is one area where there's no agreement. Um, the exporting of benefits uh, abroad is one another area. Uh, the ability to vote in local elections. Uh, the right to onward movement. I'm not quite sure what that, that what means. So right, onward movement is once you've moved, uh, that you can then move again. Right. Essentially, yeah. so it's not just about settling in one member state. So obviously, as, a, as an EU citizen, you can. Uh, we could go to France, work there for a year, and then move on. Mm. Uh, what the what the UK's position so far has been is that. EU citizens who've been here for more than two years would be able to stay and apply for settled status. But if they left for a period of time, if they went back home for six yeah. to twelve months, they would then not be eligible to return. Yeah, that's, yeah. That's yeah. I, I think this is what, that's one of the more interesting things because I think that's so much more valuable to the EU than it is to us. Simply for the fact that everyone in the EU speaks English and very few yeah, of our most, citizens. That's speak. a really good point. Actually. Yeah. yeah. So it always makes me laugh when I see on Facebook or something like, "Oh, you've." Uh, you have compromised my my ability to work, to work in Spain, even though they don't speak a word of Spanish, Slavic, <laughs> German, French. Yeah. It's interesting. Well, yeah, the, the language barrier does create a very two sided uh, issue here. Yeah, uh, and actually, probably when uh, a French person does move over to Slovenia or wherever it is, um, or Poland, they probably do communicate in English, which is the which is the irony of the whole thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, so, so, sorry, Alex. I just uh, there you. was only one more, which was the. Uh, the right to bring in family members um, is, is another area where there's no agreement. And there seems to be... A, uh, he, he actually spelled it out, but I, I, I can't remember exactly what it was. But there seems to be a, a, a negotiation going on where we're offering one of those on behalf of the 27 uh, uh, citizens who are in the UK on behalf of them giving us one for British citizens in the, in the EU. So it seems like we'll give you one if you give us one. Mm. Um, but we haven't had a, a response, apparently, from the EU on that. Um, How important is voting in local elections? I, I don't. I don't know how, quite how that applies. To be honest with you, I can't. I can't imagine. Um, yeah, but I mean, Davis. Davis set out that in, in a lot of these areas, we are 
offering a much more generous position than the EU is. And I, 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 I don't think this is one of the cases where it's, it's all our fault. I think they are they are being uh, stubborn on some of this. Yeah. Um, but it, I, I, I don't see why we can't come to an agreement more quickly on this one. Um, obviously, then he moved on to the issue of the divorce bill, saying you know there was some progress, but obviously there's not not an agreement yet. Irish, the Irish border is still really up in arms. Um, I think I think there's been some messaging this week that the EU is willing to be pretty flexible on Ireland, um, potentially uh, setting up a kind of completely unique status in order to, in order That's to avoid in order a to unique avoid status a for border. Ireland. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In order to avoid a hard border, which I, I guess is good news. I, I don't have much detail on that. There's, I mean, no matter which way you think about this, there's it, got there's got to be a unique status for it to work. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. it's the only way it will work. Yeah, yeah, there's no establishment in law. It's the uh, only way a hard border can be avoided is for there to be some kind of unique arrangement. Um, so yeah, Davis was you know quite sombre and about the whole thing, and then Keir Starmer got up to kind of give his reactions to the whole thing, and Keir Starmer came across as, as a therapist really to David Davis, was quite consoling. Um, you know, really kind of took him to town about the fact that things are going very, very slowly. So he, ha- he had the line about David Davis um, after the after the meal came out and said, "Well, talks are accelerating." And Keir Starmer said, "Well, if a car accelerates from two miles an hour to four miles an hour, it's accelerating, but it's still not moving very fast." He then <laughs> um, came up with it's in a state of paralysis. Yeah, which uh, you know, uh, I mean, we're nearly at the end of all of our issues. Issues now. I know we've got um, flights. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's just, there's just okay. a, a few other little things. Um, there was a, an article today um, that apparently airlines are prepping to warn customers that they can't guarantee flights after mm. after we leave the EU. Now, I, I, I'm not convinced of this one bit. I'm not convinced of this one bit. I think this is the airline biz, um, in, industry stoking up uh, a little bit of worry because they stand to lose a lot. So this is them just. Throwing their weight behind something in well, order to make sure we get something. You know, we've got we've got ministers calling for there to be no deal, um, <laughs> and under a no deal scenario, a true no deal scenario anyway, that there would be no no airline agreements in place, and they would they wouldn't know if their planes were available to land. They wouldn't be able to book play, spots at airports anymore. Mm. So like, it, it, it is an issue. Um, I mean, I, I don't know if last week I went over this whole separation of the no deal thing. I can't remember if I did last no, week. No, I don't think you did. Um, no, yes, I, I, I'll quickly go with, like my yeah, thinking please. on this at the minute. Um, is that there's, everyone's talking about no deal, but there's actually two types, and it's a very, very dangerous kind of misuse of language, and we've seen loads of this going on throughout the entire Brexit debate since it very, very started, that people are using language for different things, and it's, it's make, basically meaning that words are lo- losing all their meaning. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's, there's two types of no deal being talking about here in, in, in the popular media, um, and one is what I would call a negotiated no deal, which I think is what most people are talking about, people like John Renwood, Redwood and people like that, in that what they're anticipating is that talks break down to the point that we go into essentially a crisis round of talks and a whole bunch of agreements are grandfathered and some new kind of small light-touch facilitative group of agreements are put in place to make sure that things kind of still continue to function. Just give me an example of that. And there isn't a total breakdown. So, I mean, airlines could be one of them. So, right. so you know, it gets to the point where, you know, we haven't got this big FTA in place. Uh, you know, there's no, there's no big deal on the cards. So let's come together to make sure that planes can still fly. Mm. Let's come together to make sure that we can still collaborate and research, that we can still send data to each other, that we still collaborate on security, all stuff like this, right? Yes. That's what they're talking about, which isn't a no deal because there's actually loads of deals involved there. Um, and then there's another type of no deal, which is with no deals, which is actually no deals, which I would call chaos, no deal, or, yeah. a, tr- or a true no deal. Um, and there are some people who want that and want us to actually sever all ties. Who um, wants that? I mean, I, is there actually anyone that wants that? The, the, the thing is, I'm, I'm not. I'm not sure people actually know what they want um, because. <laughs> You've got people who concentrate very much on the trade aspect of things, um, basically don't talk about anything else. And for them, they are happy with essentially no deal whatsoever, reverting to WTO rules, mm. as, as everyone puts it. But then are they also expecting that they want no deal on you know, aerospace or you know, medicines or pharmaceuticals or anything like that? I don't know. It, it depends kind of whether you're talking about all the issues at once or just one of them. Mm. Um, but I think some people's understanding of no deal is that we can literally walk away with zero agreements and that that would be okay. Um, I think there was a YouGov poll two weeks ago which, yeah. which basically said there's still loads of people really in favour of no deal. But <laughs> d- w- w- what were people voting for there? Were they voting for no deal on trade? Or were they v- voting for no deal on everything? Um, and I, I just think this is, this is one area where there's, there's a bit of a language barrier going on. Yeah. Um, now, after all of this, 
and we've been doing this podcast know, maybe maybe nine months so I mean it, it's been a while yeah. yeah are you more or less confident um, about the UK's prospects for a reasonable Brexit uh, uh, it's, it's a really really hard one to answer I, I, I've given this a go and I, I think there are three things uh, that the chances of, of happening are, are increasing uh, for me the first one is we exit without a deal, basically, or, or that we have to go into these crisis, this crisis round of talks. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think the true chaotic no deal is really on the cards. I, d- I don't think that will happen. Um, but I think the chances that we don't come to this kind of broad agreement that we want and we have to go into a crisis round of talks, I, th- I think the chances of that are increasing. And then the other thing which I think is possible is that uh, we basically have to be rescued. So we get to the end of it and the EU goes, you know what? we'll let you stay or we'll let you revoke Article 50. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the chances of that are also increasing. And then the third thing is, I think the chances are increasing that the EU will allow us to basically have a deal which gives them everything that they want. But they'll, allow us, they'll, they'll allow us to sell it to our people as if we've won. Mm-hmm. Um, I, th- I think the chances of us getting this kind of perfect Brexit deal where we get everything that we want out of it you know, and get rid of freedom of movement... And the EU goes, oh, you know what, you, you got us on that one, like, you know, you, you scoundrels. <laughs> Thank, yeah, I, I, thanks for the Euro trading. I, I think the chances of that are going down uh, by the day. So it, it's kind of going more to the extremes, is my, is my position. Okay, Christian? Yeah, I don't know, Alex, has, Alex has done a very good job. Um, yeah, I'm, the, the, chance of, as I said, the chance of catastrophic no deal, as we always said, was, you know, I, I, part of me still wants to hang on to this, is that it's so... It's so devastating, it, it will just not be allowed to happen. Mm. Um, but I think if you might have been at, you know, one in a million chance nine months ago, and we might be at one in a thousand now, um, one in a thousand is still pretty rare, but the possibility of it happening has just increased by three orders of magnitude. Mm. Yeah? So I think that's, that's kind of where I am. It's, um, and my worry is the, particularly the fact that the public on this, you know, that 75%. In favour, no deal. I, I think I'm with you, Alex. I think this is a confusion of what all these words mean. Yes. I don't think we have 75% of people saying burn the treaty. We should just burn the treaties and walk. Um, but that's not helpful in this narrative because yeah. for me, yeah, the big challenge we've got through all of this is it feels like constantly like we are being led by in our politicians, supported by in terms of very shouty politicians, not necessarily in government and the media. All of this narrative is is actually. 90% of this narrative is terrible. Yeah. It's being driven by people who don't understand what it all means. They're using words they incorrectly. They're using terms incorrectly. They are riding on key propositions for them which are simply not true. So, you know, people shout down Redwood for saying what he says. Fine, quite correct. The point is, it's, you know, I'm, tr- I'm still trying to work out is... Actually, no, I'm not trying to work if Redwood's stupid. I know he's not stupid. I know from his previous... Stuff. He's not, da- he's not yeah, daft. In fact, it, it, I think the thing which is said about Redwood is he's too clever for his own good. Yeah, but when people come out and say the rest of the world trades with the rest of the world on WTO terms, it is just not correct. Yeah. It, this is not how the world works. And to try and lead people in, to lead people who don't know much already down an alleyway where they start to think that that's okay. Yeah risks poisoning the atmosphere um, yeah. and I guess the other thing that's come out is as that goes on the atmosphere generally becomes more and more toxic so actually the longer this very poor conversation goes on and the higher the pressure becomes as we run out of time the greater the risks Yeah. and secondly as the business communities of you know, all the business organisations have put very well in the past few days cracking a transitional deal the value of being certain about what the future world looks like is exponentially diminishing. Telling business the world what the world will look like on April 2019 today is quite useful. In January it'll be helpful. By April it'll probably be irrelevant. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's too close to be able to do any information with. It's like saying, I'm going to give you forward notice, Jonathan, that we're going to blow up your house. <laughs> if I can tell you that that's a year away, that's pretty helpful. If I'm telling you that actually I'm going to do it at half past eight this evening... Me telling you that is of no help whatsoever. <laughs> it's really not. I can, I, can, I can go a bit nuts here and try and end this whole thing on a, on a positive. Go, go on. on. Uh, go um, on. 
I think people like Redwood and Reese Mogg and the kind of hard hard line no deal Brexiteers are, are outliers. Like and they, yeah. they are they are. Um, you know you know we had Amber Rudd said you know that no deal is unthinkable. Like there's there's obviously major parts of the cabinet which understand the implications of it. Um, so the way that I, I I'm spinning this in my head and I might be clutching at straws here is that maybe this is actually all being maybe this is being done on purpose and. I keep saying that the government is forcing itself into a corner that it can't get out of, and maybe that they maybe they're realising that that's what's happening, and so essentially now what they're planning for is to give loads of ground and just let the EU have whatever it wants out of this. But they're making preparations to sell it to the people as a win. Yeah. And I think if they if they are basically saying you know we're, we're in such a corner that we're going to have to capitulate, but we need to kind of mess the language around so much that we can spin it as a win. I, I just wonder whether the EU will go. You know what? Just let them have it. Yes. <laughs> just, just let them have it. Do you know, my my view is I can't substantiate. It. It's just going to be. It's going to be fine. There's, there's too many adults, and you can see things going on in the background. Even though we get these only like small leaks, you know, small details here and there. there there's actually less. I think there's less chance of a No Deal now than there was before. Because the electorate would have probably voted on, on a no, no deal because they have no idea what, what it's about. There's probably more MPs that would have gone for the no deal prior to the Brexit vote than there is now because they've actually thought about it. If anything, the chances of a no deal are far, far slimmer than what the than well, that's, that's an interesting. That's an interesting line. I don't buy it entirely, but I'm, I'm sympathetic yeah. to your to your thought process. Uh, and My then, only fear, I think, I think the big risk, and it was kind of brought up about earlier, is. Is, ca- is cataclysmic outcome unlikely? Yeah, it's extremely unlikely. Mm. The question is, have you set... Business needs to know it's not going to be cataclysmic very, I mean, that very soon. Could, that, I mean, that actually could be the cataclysmic event, couldn't it? It, it could, could be, because the point the is, we, we could, by next November, have agreed, actually, a, let's use May's words, a deep and comprehensive deal which goes somewhere into services, and yeah. you know what, actually everything's cool, but all the big companies have already gone. Yes, that's I'm, your bit. That's the risk for me. That's much, much higher. Yeah, I, I we, we'll get it sorted, but we'll have missed the boat. Yeah, we've got that whole aerospace industry in Toulouse or something. It's already starting to get. Yeah, that's that's the big risk. Yeah, right. I think that's fair. That is a fairly comprehensive agreement, even though it's not a trade agreement. Um, <laughs> tell me where your Twitter addresses are again, gents. Uh, I'm at GMCC underscore Alex and at GMCC underscore Christian, which is for the expert, for expert questions for idle chit chat. Find me at J Beardmore. Right. Until next, are we going to do one next week? Uh, well, I'm I'm hopefully somewhere in the EU next week on my holiday, so I might dial in, but then again, I might not. So, well, just watch his feed, and you'll find out. <laughs> so, next week, goodbye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff: shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.